I want us to consider again as we begin the overarching theme of this wonderful book. The author is writing this letter to a group of Hebrew believers, people who had a heritage in the Jewish faith, but who have come to see Jesus as the fulfillment of that faith, as the true Messiah that had been promised in the Old Testament scriptures. And yet these believers had begun to, to be tempted to turn away from the worship of Jesus Christ as Messiah and back to the law of Moses that they began with. They had known the prophecies of Scripture that God had promised to send an anointed one to save Israel, to redeem his people. They had heard the gospel and believed that Jesus was that Messiah. But trusting Christ had proved harder than they expected. And so they were having second thoughts. They could see that simply being Jewish and not trusting in Christ would be socially easier for them. But turning away from Jesus would have been a grave error, for they would be embracing the shadow of the promise rather than Jesus, who is himself the complete fulfillment of the promises that God has made to his chosen. It would almost be like a man, having been married for a couple of years, seeing firsthand the challenges of that covenant commitment, and then sitting his wife down and saying, you know what, honey, I, I love you and you know that, but I think we need to just go back to being engaged. Wasn't it so much easier? You know, I didn't have to take care of you all the time, and people weren't always, you know, expecting us to be places. So I love that when we could just date, and you live in your house, and I'll live in my house. We'll just go back to being engaged. How about that? that that's what it would be like if these Hebrew believers, having trusted Christ, would then say, this is too hard for me. I need to go back to just, just worshiping at the temple and bringing my sacrifices each week and being thankful for the Old Testament law and the guidance it provides, what a downgrade that would be for them. By this time, we have followed the author's very thorough arguments that he hopes will compel the Hebrews to remain faithful to Jesus. But we do not have any record of whether this letter was successful in preventing them from turning away. Throughout the book of Hebrews, interspersed among the many declarations that Jesus is greater and is therefore the only one worthy of our worship and praise, are scattered several serious and stern warnings about what can happen when those who profess Jesus as Christ do not continue to rest their attention and affections on the Savior. When we fail to be mindful of Jesus and allow our hearts and minds to be consumed with other lesser things, we run the risk of missing the great blessing of the fellowship that He has secured for us. Or even worse, we may be proving that our faith was never genuine to begin with. We will put our focus primarily into two passages today. The first verse, uh, the first passage of verses being in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and the second being in chapter 3, verses 12 through 19. Starting with verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to His will. 
Here in chapter 2, the author of Hebrews gives us the first of four important instructions that command a greater mindfulness from those who trust in Christ. Instruction number one is this. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. What does this warning imply? It implies that the Hebrews were paying attention to what they had heard, at least to some degree. They had been paying some mind to the gospel, but not to the degree that it deserves. If we have a desire to do as the writer of the Hebrew letter insists, if we are committed to being mindful of Jesus, we need to pay closer attention to the gospel that we have heard. It cannot be something that crosses our mind occasionally. It cannot be a set of details that we are loosely interested in. We've got to engage this important truth with our minds. And when verse 2 tells us to pay much closer attention, the adverb that is used there in the original uh, Greek language is parasoteros. And parasoteros means to do something with exceeding fervor, to do it abundantly. It even is sometimes translated vehemently. There is great emphasis here on the kind of attention that is deserved by this greater priest, by this superior sacrifice, and his greater covenant that he brings to share with us. This is not a casual mindfulness. It does not mean numbering a love for Jesus among your many hobbies or interests. The word used here entails both an intensity of focus and an enduring commitment to the subject matter at hand. An intensity of focus and an enduring commitment to the subject matter. So this is not some passing glance. This is an intense stare at the truth. Do you remember Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel paint that I showed at Christmas Eve service? If so, probably you do for the wrong reasons. I almost regret sharing that painting that is so famous. I thought everyone had seen it, but... Um, but there were some details that I got some flack for afterwards. So I've given you a modified version <laughs> of this painting today. I want to bring it up again because of what Michelangelo is trying to communicate through this painting. You see, Adam's hand is the one on the left. And just look at the posture of that hand. Look at how it just casually reaches out, not almost sure that it wants to reach for the Lord, but I guess I'll kind of make an effort towards God. But on the left, you see the hand of the Lord God. And if you saw the full picture, which censors have disallowed this morning, God is reaching. He is yearning for his people. And we see the difference in the qualities of love that we have to God compared to what God has for us. That he has such a great heart for his people. And in comparison, the devotion and commitment we have to him, the yearning that we have for our God is, is only a fraction. It pales in comparison. Parasiteros is not Adam's nonchalant gesture towards the Father, but an enthusiastic reach with focused determination, more akin to what God is depicted in showing towards Adam. Does the Savior get that kind of mindfulness from you? Is that how you think about your Savior? After committing to the title of this sermon, I realized I need to clarify what I meant by encouraging a greater mindfulness based on some of the things you might encounter or be exposed to in the culture we live in. In secular psychology today, there's a very commonly used meditation technique that is derived from New Age and Eastern philosophies called 
mindfulness. It is being popularized by certain meditation apps that you can download on your phone, such as Headspace or Insight Timer. You might have heard of those. Don't go there now. These are apps that can get you to spend a certain amount of time each day looking at calming photos and practicing varying thought-filtering techniques so that you'll stay more tuned in to what's going on right in front of you. If you work at Google, for instance, you would be required to undergo training in the practice of mindfulness in order to make you a more focused and less stressed out employee. So if you haven't heard of this mindfulness craze yet, you'll probably hear of it sometime soon. Psychology Today defines mindfulness as a state of active, open attention to the present. You don't think about the past so much. Don't go worry about where you've been or what you've done. Don't worry so much about the future. Just focus on the now. When you're mindful, you observe your thoughts and feelings from a distance without judging them good or bad. Instead of letting your life pass you by, mindfulness means living in the moment and awakening to experience." End quote. So the goal of psychological mindfulness no doubt means well, recognizing that getting swept up in what happened in the past or what may not even happen in the future can keep us from focusing on what's right in front of us. It can keep us from being very productive in life. It can kind of capture us, keep us prisoner. But do you see the fundamental flaws in this particular way of pursuing mindfulness? Look at that quote again. It hinges on embracing all that's happening to you without judgment. There is no good, there is no bad, there is only reality. In order to be mindful in that secular way, you have to put God's authority and declaration regarding what is good and what is bad on the shelf and just embrace life for what it presents to you. In other words, it's a form of pragmatic lawlessness. That's not good for you, no matter how relaxing it might seem. Verses 2 through 4 of Hebrews 2 reminds us that there is a good and a bad and that we don't need to render our own judgments regarding that good and that bad because the God of the universe has already declared the difference and will judge his creation upon those declarations of truth. The mindfulness we are pursuing is not about taking in the details of the present moment without judgment. It's about realizing that the present moment, though it is often rife with struggles and sin, that last song is a beautiful ministry to the hearts of those who struggle at Christmas time, who have a hard time with these, these, these seasons which are often so joyful for others but can be a burden to those who have experienced loss or who are going through tough trials. This present moment can be rife with struggle and sin, but it can be redeemed through one worthy source, Jesus Christ and Him alone. Let us put our thoughts and our affections upon Him. Mindfulness that is free of judgment equates to mindlessness, but a mindfulness that recognizes that our sin has brought us under the wrath of God and that the only way we can get out from underneath that judgment is if Christ has taken that judgment upon himself and paid for it with his own perfect blood. That is peace. That, that is joy, friends. So what does it mean to be mindful of the greater one? We're going to continue to un- unfold this as we go, but just to begin... It means that we live in such a way that our minds, our thoughts are full of Christ. 
That as we think throughout the day, that he's not just something we have to, oh yeah, remember to, to think about every once in a while, right before we eat a meal, or maybe right before we put our kids down to bed, but that our minds are full of the realities of Christ's goodness and truth. You don't need a guided meditation app for this. God's telling us in his word today to think, and to think well about noble and holy things, to think about that which is pure and good and righteous, to think about the true source of love in this world. Think about the gospel and the hope that we have in God's plan to redeem a broken people, to to bring them to life spiritually, and to reunite them with himself. Think about where you were before he interrupted your life. Think about the state you would be in today if he had not done that. If you are today, this very day, living in such a way that all your hopes and joys hinged on the circumstances of your life, where would you be at today? And then think about how differently things are if you sit in your seat you're sitting in right now and you have Christ as your Savior. You have Christ as your shepherd guiding you through every circumstance. Think about the places that he, having redeemed you, has now brought you that you could never go to on your own. Think about how he's taught you to love others. Think about how through his word he has has taken the, the, the rotten thoughts of life out of your vocabulary and made you think about the world in brand new ways. That he has given you a holier insight into how to interact with your fellow neighbor, with your fellow man. Think about the fact that God was under no obligation to save us. Not one of us deserves the mercy and the grace that he has poured out upon our wretched souls. And yet he has chosen to do this freely for us. He's paid a great personal price to do so. Jesus is the Word incarnate. Every one of these words are Christ's words. So if you want to be mindful of Jesus, it makes sense that this book will be open before you, if not every day, then most days. That you will open it and consider the words that God has given. And if you can't get the word in front of you, then be memorizing the scripture so that throughout the day God's word will be popping into your mind, that you'll be thinking about different passages of wisdom and truth that he has deposited into you so that your mind won't be scattered and thinking about the various competing doctrines of the world but that your mind will be settled on the sure truth, the faithful testimony of God's word. Since God is a personal being, do not only think about him as if he is some subject, but think with God. Pursue him in prayer, friends. When you are praying, you are thinking with God. You are sharing your heart with him. Your mind is fixed upon him, and you are communicating to him the things that you love about him the gratitude you have for what he has done for you. You're communicating to him the repentance you need to bring to him when you don't walk in his ways. You're expressing your, your, your dependence upon his provision to you. Pursue him in prayer. Thank him for his wonderful attributes. Confess to him the things that he has taught to you, the things that you need so desperately to know in order to walk through this world in a way that's pleasing to him. Acknowledge your weakness. Talk to him about how little you are compared to his greatness. Acknowledging your sins, 
but also rejoicing outwardly to him that he has laid those sins to rest once and for all. And we have every reason to keep our minds fixed upon this great salvation, don't we? Jesus is greater than the angels, but the angels serve their purpose. They have a message to mankind, don't they? And as these first four verses of chapter 2 remind us, they tell us that the angels are given a message that revealed to us God's purposes and plans. The message delivered to, by the angels has proved to be reliable to us. God is indeed a holy God who will not put up with sin forever. He will punish those who break the laws of God and are in sin. And this is a reality that we have to contend with. We cannot put it aside to live life in the moment. Apart from Christ, sin is what defines the moment. So the angels have delivered the law, which proclaims that God is a God of justice. Without the salvation afforded through the justification that Jesus provides, throughout the sacrifice of his perfect life, we will surely suffer judgment. Not from the cosmos or from karma, but from God himself who is love and is also at the same time perfectly just. The important truth had been declared by the Lord for generations through his angels and then resounded in the lives of the prophets who testified to these great things. And this predates us significantly. It is bigger than our culture. So be wary of any new fad that comes in and says, this is the new way for, for mindfulness. This is the new way for peace and, and for peace of mind. No, peace of mind comes when the eternal God draws you near to him through the methods he gives to you through his word. This message has been attested to the people of God by those who heard. And God affirmed its legitimacy by signs and wonders and miracles, all of which indicated the salvation is not some fairy tale of a story that was made up by the imaginations of men to soothe their stinging souls, to entertain us for a bit until a newer, more creative story could be dreamt up. No, this is supernatural power intervening in natural life. And so when you read God's book, you are seeing God saying, I am greater than what you see with your eyes and touch with your hands. Have faith in me. Let us be acutely aware of this gospel, which is the only means by which we can escape the condemnation that our actions have earned. How mindful are we as a people of the importance of the salvation God has given to us? Imagine for a second that you're in the ocean and you're swimming, you're having a good time, it's a lot warmer day than it is today, and you hear somebody yell one word, shark. Do you finish up the game of Marco Polo that you're playing and then turn around to see what all the commotion and fuss is about? No, you stop what you're doing immediately. And whatever was in your mind before now means so very little compared to that one word, shark, because it is real and it has the potential to change everything about the reality that you live in right now. And you might think, well, that's an unfair comparison. I don't want to think of God as some giant shark that could chomp me in bits in a minute. Well, let's try a different analogy. Let's pretend instead that we're in the Sahara and that we're on a safari and we're taking in the beautiful sights of Africa and someone yells a different word. Lion. Lion! 
And you're not in the safe confines of your Land Rover. You are in the field where the lion is approaching. You will think of nothing other than that lion until that moment of tension is resolved, right? And the scripture doesn't describe our Savior as a puppy dog. He is described as the Lion of Judah. One who has power. One who has authority. And you are in his domain. Earth is not man's and heaven God's. Let's get that straight. All of creation sprung from the words of this mighty creator that we call God. So you are in his territory. And he is the one who rules over it. His laws reign supreme, not ours. So we must have a great mindfulness of this God because this God is a God of justice. And if we disregard him and try to live our lives independently of him, then justice will come to us in a way that we do not want it to. Our first instruction has been laid out that we are to pay closer attention to this gospel which we have received. And the motivation for seriously heeding that instruction has been given to us as well. The author has more to say, however, on this very important matter. So let us turn our attention to chapter 3. And we're going to read a few more verses here, starting in verse 12, moving through to verse 19. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. (laughs) As it is said, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Yet it was not Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. There are three more important directions given to us in this section. The next one is this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Not only, friends, must we pay attention to the gospel, but we must also care for the state of our heart. You see, paying attention equals consistent awareness. And this happens mostly in the arena of the mind, doesn't it? This instruction to care, however, reminds us that this is not a matter simply of objective facts, of knowing about something. It is tied as well to the heart, to what we sincerely love because we have come to know it. How is this unbelieving heart described in verse 12? It might be a little shocking to us that an unbelieving heart is described as evil, Unbelief, friends, is not a neutral state. Unbelief is evil. Did you know that? When somebody says, well, I'm an agnostic. I've thought about the things of God a bit. I've spent a little time considering the claims of Christianity, but I don't think there's enough evidence yet for me 
to decide one way or the other. They often think of themselves in some neutral category. I'm not against God. I don't, I don't hate God. But we're, we're told here that unbelief of God is evil. And when we don't pay mind to the Lord God, we are practicing a form of unbelief. Think for a moment about the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. It is here that he lays the foundation for a very thorough doctrine which we will explain, first of man's sin and then of God's solution to sin, that which he will go on to explain for the first several chapters of Romans. And he says here in verse 18 of Romans 1, when he's laying that foundation, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, by who their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They see the truth, yet they suppress it. They choose to lie to themselves about life, convincing themselves that they don't need God, that they can live independently of Him. And I use that word they lightly because that they is actually we. We were them as well. We lived in that way before the Lord God interrupted our lives, before the gospel shined light into the darkest places of our hearts. But what about those who don't know that he's real, some might ask. The next verse answers that question for us, Romans 1.19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Now, not every heart has been turned to faith in Christ, but every human being in the world, just by opening their eyes, just by listening to the world that they live in, just by feeling the sensations of what God has made, knows to some degree that there is a God, that He is real, and that He is the bearer of truth. Verse 20 plainly says that man is without excuse. And see where this stubborn oppression of the truth leads man. Verse 21 of Romans chapter 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, I'm not delusional here. We don't know everything there is to know about God, especially lost men who has not been exposed to the gospel, doesn't know the details of who God is, but they know enough that their disbelief of Him is not just ignorance, but it is rebellion against the truth. It is an evil unbelief. A heart that fails to believe in a real active sense inevitably falls away from the living God. And so verse 24 through 28 says that because of their wicked unbelief that God gave them up. And he says that in three different ways. He says he gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to their dishonorable passions, and to their debased minds. You see how the heart and the mind both play a role in this mindfulness. Because they refused to believe the truth of God and substituted it for a reality they fabricated themselves. God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts and the passions that were so dishonorable within them and to their debased minds. Brothers and sisters, we've got to be cautious about what we love and about what we're thinking about throughout our day. I want us to consider again, this is something I bring up from time to time, this metaphor of marriage, of the marriage covenant. And this is one of God's great gifts to humanity. 
Not everyone needs to be married. It's not the reason we were put into the world, but it is a tremendous gift that God gives to many of his people. And this gift is not simply a covenant designed to make your life happier. A lot of people think that's what God gave us marriage to, or just to fulfill our desires and to make us happy. But God gave us marriage for a more noble and worthy cause. He gave us marriage to learn to love each other like God loves us. God loves us in covenant commitment. And even though we have not kept our end of the covenant, even though we are not faithful to God the way that he is faithful to us, he continues to pour love out onto his people. And that is how marriage is supposed to work. We are supposed to commit to loving one another, not if the other one does what they say they're supposed to do, but because we have committed. And because love says, I do and I will. And so consider for a minute how that covenant of marriage, which usually begins so strong, can sometimes run into trouble. How do married couples who are once so passionately in love with one another, how do they often grow cold to one another? When a couple stops communicating, that often does it, right? The two who used to talk with one another and, and, and ask each other how they were doing, how they were feeling, what they were dreaming about, what was going on in their lives, how they could be praying for one another, when it becomes businesslike and there, there stops being that communication regularly between a husband and a wife, then the affections that they hold towards one another begin to dwindle. When a couple stops considering one another's needs before their own needs, we do this pretty freely when we're in that earlier stage of marriage and we're trying to woo someone to us. We're glad to do something for someone else, even if it costs us dearly, even if it's hard for us to do that thing for them. And then somewhere along the lines, it becomes some great sacrifice to do the dishes for one another, right? And it's, it's, it's so, so terrible to try to do something menial and small to please another when it used to be the joy that we would experience in sacrificing for one another. When we stop making those sacrifices, when we stop caring about the needs and the desires and the well-being of our spouse before ourselves, that love that used to be so alive begins to stumble and fade. When we begin to see the differences between ourselves and our spouse as annoying, we begin to bristle at the, the, the differences that they have, the way they look at the world differently, or the way that they live their life differently than us, we begin to be just in contempt of that. We just wish they would think like we do and do things the way that we do and be like us. Then our love for them begins to grow cold. And every one of the things I just described is true also for our relationship with the Lord God. When you are not communicating with the Lord God, you're not talking to Him in prayer and you're not letting Him speak to you through the Word that He's provided for you, it is so very easy to get caught up in other endeavors in the world to such a degree that He's not on your mind anymore that you're no longer loving the Lord as you should because your communication with Him has, has almost stopped. When we, when we refuse to, to make any sacrifices to serve the Lord God or to obey Him when it's difficult in our life to obey Him, then we're showing a lack of commitment to the covenant we have made and our love to Him can grow cold. When we see the holiness, the otherness of God, <clears throat> and we're annoyed by it, instead of being in awe and wonder of this God who is so different than us. And we begin to think, Man, I wish God would just do things our way, my way. I wish God would, would give me what I want right now instead of working things out on his schedule. And we begin to grow contentious toward this God that we in reality have every reason to be thankful for and appreciate. 
if there is something different about God and us, it's better in God than it is in us. Whatever he's got that is different, we should try to conform ourselves to how he is and to the way he thinks and the way that he cares. And yet we often, because of neglect, not only do we lose track of what we know of God, but we lose track of our heart for him. When we stop being mindful of our relationship to God as the relationships of prime importance in our lives, our hearts run the risk of growing cold. <clears throat> as the passage progresses here in chapter 3, we see that our own faith is not the only faith that we are to be concerned about. Look at this third instruction, that we are to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This challenge to exhort one another is tied implicitly to the idea of mindfulness in Christ. We must help one another remain mindful of the gospel. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the fact that the covenant that Jesus gives is a greater covenant. Speaking of that greater covenant, the prophet Jeremiah says, and this is quoted in part in Hebrews 8, Jeremiah says, Behold, in chapter 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That last part of the promise, it always comes back up into my mind that no one will have to teach each other. Friends, I, as much as I love to preach, I look forward to a day when my job is essentially obsolete because we have so much love for the Lord that we don't need to be taught. That the Lord has filled us with His Spirit to such a degree that we are constantly seeing His truth pouring out of His Word into our lives. But we know that that, not, that time is not yet fully realized yet. We still need preachers. We still need exhortation from one another. Not only from people in the pulpit, but from every believer that we can get it from. We need to be reminded of the good things that God is doing. We need to be reminded of how to repent, of when to repent, of why to repent. And how often are we to do this for one another according to chapter 3 of Hebrews. Every day we are to do this to one another. So this doesn't mean that as long as you do your Lord's Day time on Sunday and you get your exhortation there, that's all you need. You can go off and then just run through life however you want to for the rest of your six days of the week. No. We need exhortation every day. We need to be encouraged by a brother or sister in Christ every day. Someone who knows more needs to come along and give us some good knowledge that we can gain for our own every day. And for how long should we keep up this practice of exhorting one another as long as it is called today. So as long as there is room for exhortation, friends. I often marvel at that promise. This exhortation acts as a kind of spiritual vaccination against the deceitfulness 
of sin. When we are surrounded by brothers and sisters who will profess and confess what we also profess and confess, then the voice of our deceiver, the enemy who comes in and tries to take our mind off of the Lord and put it on things that don't matter, that voice becomes weaker and weaker the louder the voice of our brethren affirms what we know to be true from Scripture. The arguments of the enemy can seem more appealing when we find ourselves isolated from the regular fellowship and encouragement that comes from being side by side with our church family. By the way, you don't have to know someone to exhort them. I am often exhorted by people who have never met me who don't know my name. Philip Ryken, Bodie Bauckham, J.C. Ryle. These are men that constantly are encouraging me and exhorting me and challenging me to be more like Christ. But you know, it can sure help to be exhorted by someone who knows you. To have somebody who actually knows your story and can see exactly where you're walking in life and knows you well enough to love you, to grab you by the arm and say, you know what, I read a scripture the other day and I thought of where you're at right now. And I thought I'd be an encouragement to you. That kind of personal encouragement and exhortation can be such a joy to us It can stimulate our minds to a greater mindfulness of Christ. You know you're really getting close to a brother or sister when you can tell their testimony for them. When you can be standing in a group and say, you ever heard about how so-and-so got saved? Let me tell you about how the Lord changed this brother's life. Let me tell you about how God got a hold of this sister and made her new. We should be pursuing friendships with one another to such a degree that we can tell each other's testimony to the people around us, that we know how God is working in our lives, that we know the special challenges that we face, and we can be praying for each other about those challenges and and offering pointed encouragement and scriptures that have to do with those challenges to our brothers and sisters as they work through those valleys. These Hebrew believers needed a true friend, someone to recognize the danger of their discouragement and point them back to the light that they had already seen. And that is exactly what they got from the writer of the book of Hebrews. They were on the precipice of turning away from their first love. And the writer of Hebrews is beckoning them back with an exhortation that it sometimes stings them and calls them weak and helps them to see that they need to begin to become stronger. And at other times is sweet and gentle and reminds them of how much they do love the Lord God. So let us consider one another in the same way. And a final applicational command is found in chapter 3, verse 15, which itself is a quotation of Psalm 95. It says, If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The rebellion refers to the wilderness wandering. And I want us to consider this. This is a time period, the rebellion in the wilderness, directly after God had done tremendous good to the people. Tremendous good to the people. They had been slaves for four centuries under the oppressive reign of the Egyptians. Not only were they doing hard labor regularly, not only were they not free to worship as they desired, but this regime was throwing out terrible genocidal laws against the Israelites. When they began to to grow in number and God blessed their multitudes, the Pharaoh ordered that all the, for the, uh, the sons of the Israelites under two years old would be put to death, would be drowned. Can you imagine living under that kind of oppression? We think our government is bad. And yet, yet these Hebrews were living under this grave, grave oppression and hatred. 
And yet he had, through his miraculous power, freed them through that. Freed them from this slavery and brought them into a new place. Promised them that they were going to someplace much better than the Egypt that they had left. And he had done this with miraculous signs that showed him that they were a special people to him. He allowed them to see things that people had never seen before. And yet those same people who had witnessed these miracles, who had seen these fantastic things that they could not explain, mere days after being set free from their bondage of hopelessness, allowed the inconveniences of a life of testing and trial to negate the effect of what God had done in their perceptions. They chose to see what they weren't getting at the ignorance of what they had been given already. And they grew cold to the God who loved them so much. If we fail to pay close attention to what Christ has done for us, there is a threat that our hearts will become hardened and we will drift away from what we have heard. When we drift, there are two possible outcomes. The drifting can marginalize Jesus in our lives, can push him into the corner of our being in such a way that the myriad of blessings that flow from being near to Christ, from having him permeate our every aspect of life, will not be realized. We won't enjoy those benefits. We might be saved, but our days are not filled with the wonder of Christ. In many ways, this has already begun to happen to the Hebrew church as the author writes this letter. Remember the, the... Words of Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. It says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, he's talking to these Hebrew believers who are on the fence here, says, You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So he was calling out his Hebrew friends. He's saying, listen, you've been in Christ long enough that you should be feasting on more the realities of who he is. Your mind should be full of the great blessings that he has given to you. And yet because you're not mindful of what you received, you're still like a a, a child Drinking formula. How do babies drink formula? If you're a parent, you've ever gotten that stuff on you? It smells disgusting. (laughs) This stuff is rancid. I can't see how they stomach it. They don't know what they're missing, right? Once you you outgrow that stuff and you get real food, I mean, the palate of flavors and the the enjoyment that you can have in, in feasting is wonderful. What the author of Hebrews is saying is, like, I want to give you a feast. I want to give you the meat of Christ and the potatoes and the corn. I want to give you the full four-course meal, five-course meal. But because you've been unmindful of Christ, you're beginning to drift back to things that are so less than him. You want to stay babies. I'm trying to make you grown-ups here. I'm trying to give you greater blessing. So that's one of the effects that can happen. Minds that do not pay attention are minds that do not respect God well. They are minds that don't understand His will and His ways. They are minds that are weak in trust. They are minds that get easily discouraged. They are minds that are vulnerable to deception. The first potential consequence of this weak mindfulness of Jesus is a less enjoyable and far more unstable faith. 
But there is a second, even more serious possibility. And it is the possibility the Hebrew church was seriously facing here. Prolonged drifting may prove that one was for a long time orbiting the gospel of salvation, but never actually landed upon it. The one who does not truly love the Lord with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength will not be able to keep a superficial love for him forever. Their partial affections for Jesus will eventually be displaced by a greater love for something else in creation, for some lesser thing. How many people do you know that once worshipped the same Savior by your side? You thought they were truly saved. You might have even seen things that looked like the fruit of salvation in their lives, and yet today, they couldn't be bothered with the Word of God. They won't spend two hours on a Sunday morning with Him. They won't open their Scripture. They don't have time to pray. They are mindful of completely different things than they used to be. And some may know this is wrong and that the Holy Spirit might be grieving some who are saved so that they might one day come back into reconciled fellowship with Him, but so many others just don't care about this casual-mindedness towards the Lord. They don't see the importance or the urgency. The Spirit is quiet because whether they know it or not, the Spirit was never there in them. They orbited the gospel, but they never landed upon it. So much healthy assurance can come from the declarations of the book of Hebrews. But assurance is not always the exact thing a person needs. I'm going to say that again. Assurance is not always the exact thing a person needs. If a person doesn't truly trust Jesus yet, Assurance is actually the last thing they need. That kind of assurance, thinking that they are saved when they are not, will amount to a false hope. It's like arriving on the scene of an automobile accident to find a person who's mortally wounded and then just patting them on the head and saying, it's going to be fine, it's going to be okay. And then moments later they slip away and they die. We can't give people false assurance of hope. Assurance is beautiful if it is warranted. The question has to be, have you heard his voice today? Do you hear his voice now? If he is but a little thing in your life, you cannot yet know him, for there is nothing greater than him. There is no greater joy than knowing Christ and being united with him. So friend, if you have a very minor interest in Jesus Christ, and and yet you call yourself Christian today, then I encourage you to step back and ask, do I really know this great God that is being worshipped here before me? Do I know about him? Have I seen him and acknowledged he's real, but have chosen to live my own niche of what I call Christianity that doesn't match what he says is true faith? If that is the case, friend, I pray the Holy Spirit convicts you today to see the truth that you are missing out on something so vital that you cannot enter into an eternity in heaven with God without this gospel. The truth of the matter is, Christ didn't come to die and then rise from the dead victorious so that you could be interested in him for a little while. 
He came to take a hold of your heart and make you His. And I pray that you are His today. If you belong to Him, if you've given your life to that God, there may be times when you need exhortation. There may be times when you go through a, a spell, a period, where you're, you're distracted by the things of the world or your mind is adrift, but the Holy Spirit within you will remind you that that is not what Christ has won you to, that he has brought you into a more serious relationship than that. But if you have no grief for the, the little love that you have for the Lord God, then consider today that you might not have any real love and pray that the Lord God would take whatever heart and heart you have inside of you that he would soften it today, that he would help you to move away from this wretched feast of everything beside God that the world wants to feed you, that has no value eternally, that has no true benefit to your life, and that you would instead turn to the banquet table of Jesus Christ, that you would hunger for him, that your mind would be filled with the things that he knows you need, and that together as God's church, we would enjoy him as we have been saved to do. Let's take a moment in prayer as we think about these things we have learned. God, we praise you for making us new and we praise you, Lord God, for the wonderful journey that you put us on of sanctification. I ask that, Lord, the things we have been reminded of in the book of Hebrews would rest heavy on our heart, that we would think about them, Lord God, that we would contemplate them and that in your grace you would help us to grow in them. We love you and appreciate all that you do in the name of Jesus Christ. Savior. Amen.